Hello. Recently, in a speech to the annual conference of the NHS Confederation, the organisation I now run, I used the title of this podcast as the central idea. I told the audience that one morning while preparing the speech, I'd come across two bits of health-related content. One was video of a nurse patiently explaining to a crowded A&E department that the patients would have to wait several hours and that anyway, the hospital had no beds. The other was of a revolutionary breakthrough in the treatment of that most brutal of diagnoses, pancreatic cancer. The question I asked was how are we to build a bridge from where we are now to where we want to be? At the time, being optimistic about the future felt a little risky, but a new book by one of my favourite thinkers has made me wonder whether actually I should have gone further. Perhaps I could have taken a little time to describe what that future health service might actually feel and look like. After all, we're surely more likely to build that bridge if we've used our imagination to paint an exciting picture of what lies on the other side. Another health system is possible. Indeed, as my guest today argues, another world is possible. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by my old friend and colleague, Jeff Mulgan, Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Intelligence at UCR, the author of innumerable books, just about all of which I have read. His new book is Another World is Possible, How to Reignite Social and Political Imagination. Welcome, Jeff. Hi there. So I know you'll have a kind of 25-minute version of your book, which you will be giving at a variety of venues. But for this podcast, can you summarize your core thesis in more like three or four minutes? <laughs> I can try to. I mean, the, the core thesis essentially is very simple. It's a diagnosis that we have a problem of imagination, our ability to picture a better world, a generation or more into the future. We find it very easy to picture ecological catastrophe or technological futures. But we find it much harder to describe, as you say, what the health system could be like or our welfare or, or our democracy 20 or 30 years from now. I argue this is in some ways historically unusual We've lost this capacity compared to previous periods from the 19th century to the 1940s and 60s, when many people did have quite a strong shared picture of what might lie ahead, what might be a desirable, plausible future for their society, their city, their world. And I try and recommend a whole series of things we could do to amplify our imagination, to think more creatively, more imaginatively, more energetically about the options ahead. And many of them are methods drawn from the arts or design or literature, as well as from science. And I guess, crucially, I also argue this isn't about coming up with the perfect blueprint, you know, an exact description of the NHS in 2040 or 2060 or 2080. It's more about having a sense of direction, of options and possibilities, which then allow us as a society to try things out, to experiment, to find our own way towards that future. But if we don't have any sense of a desirable way ahead, 
we suffer psychologically, we suffer in terms of missed opportunities. And there's a very famous, very old saying from Seneca, the Roman philosopher who said, there are no fair winds for those who don't know where they're going. And my fear at the moment is that too many of our institutions, our political parties, and to some extent, the public just don't know where we're going. So I've often heard it said by people trying to work out how it is we can best think about the future that in a world of complexity and contingency, what we need is a compass, not a map. But reading your book, I think you want something that's kind of more mappy than a compass, but more compassy than a map, something kind of in between. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, the world is far more complex than our brains. We can never really understand what's happening in the present, let alone the future. So we shouldn't expect to have any you know, detailed ability to predict what will happen to you know, food supply next year or the war in Ukraine, or for that matter, you know, what will happen to the main parties. But I do think we need more than a compass, more than a broad direction. We need detailed analytical work to think through how things could be in order to help us plan. And an example of that, which I'm in the midst of today of a, of a fascinating event, looking at the limits to growth report from 50 years ago, which was one of the first really clarion calls for the need to completely change our industrial capitalist system to move away from very high energy inputs and waste and so on. It's amazing in some ways that 50 years on, we still haven't really worked out how to transform large parts of our economy. So, for example, clothing, we still only recycle about 2% of all clothes. Now, thinking through what might be a different system of clothing is quite a detailed job. We have succeeded in changing how we handle paper. In the EU, it's 74% of paper is now recycled, which is a dramatic change compared to a generation or more ago. That's what I'm looking for. And it, in, in relation to the health service, it's thinking through, you know, what could be a way of organising a GP surgery or a local mental health service 10, 20, 30 years from now. You won't get it right in any detail. But the exercise of trying to think things through reasonably systematically, reasonably rigorously, then makes it much easier to prepare the way and, I think, for us to sense there is a pathway to the future which we might want to be on as well. So it's fascinating you talk about you know the limits to growth because this is a good example, isn't it, of, of something which is common, which is attempts to describe the future often get some things remarkably correct and other things equally remarkably totally wrong. Now, I think that limits of growth thesis assumed that we were going to run out of fossil fuels, and that's demonstrably not the case, but it was right about the kind of environmental limits. I remember a famous piece of work, I don't think you cite it in the book, it was done I think in the 1960s when people were asked to predict the future and scientists were asked to predict the future and, and they predicted the internet. They predicted other technological developments pretty effectively. They completely failed to predict the breakdown of the nuclear family, a social trend. So I'm interested in what that tells us, this kind of common experience of getting some things dead on and other things completely wrong. And also, Jeff, help us to understand the difference between prediction and imagination. So on the first half of that, there is a, a common problem in science fiction and any work on the future that it tends to focus on physical stuff. It tends to think about maybe flying cars or you know rockets and landing us on Mars. And as you say, the internet was actually thought about 
decades before it happened. Vannevar Bush in the 1940s wrote a famous sort of piece predicting something not unlike the internet. But then a sense of social change, changes to family or relationships or values, is much rarer. And and some of you will be old enough to remember the TV program Tomorrow's World, which was always a sort of peon of praise to these new gadgets and stuff that would transform our world. But they never talked about transgender identities or, or the climate crisis or Black Lives Matter, all these other things which are much more about values and social movements, but often have as big, if not a bigger impact than the the hardware. And I call this a kind of materiality bias, this bias to physical stuff, which I think is very common in our media, in our minds. It also skews how we invest in research and development and science. So there's enormous amounts invested now in things like artificial intelligence and new materials. But a striking feature of the world is the best predictor of the happiness of a country and one of the best predictors of how well a country handled the COVID pandemic is levels of mutual support and mutual trust between people. But literally nowhere on the planet is that the topic of a large R&D program to try and improve how we do that. So this materiality bias has a rather, I think, serious and damaging effect often on how our society works. And then in relation to prediction and imagination, I mean, prediction is very hard in any field. And as you point out, the limits to to growth report in the, the early 70s got one thing, one big thing right, which was that if you're using up finite resources, they are finite, and you will run out of them at some point, and then you may have a, a fairly catastrophic challenge for your economy. But it got lots of other things wrong. Then everyone was really concerned about population explosion. That was the great sort of challenge facing the world. And there were endless conferences and gatherings. And what's really surprising 50 years on, population is still going upwards towards perhaps 9 billion. But most people expect it will probably come down a bit later this century. And some countries are beginning to really struggle with population decline, which definitely wasn't on the horizon. So we definitely need ways of looking at the future. They're probably more likely to be scenarios or foresight rather than specific predictions. But we also need the imagination which can jump beyond those to see how our world could be radically different. And that imagination then opens up the work of of innovators or scientists or entrepreneurs or or politicians to then fill that space with, with real options. At the end of the book, you criticise really the academy and the fact that, that social sciences, academic social science, doesn't spend a great deal of time thinking about the future. And I, I agree with that. But I, I wonder whether, Jeff, also you'd agree that one of the problems is, and this is a conclusion I came to in my final lecture at the RSA, is that science builds upon insight which is accepted in science, there is a kind of baseline of stuff that is accepted, and then people will disagree about the stuff at the cutting edge. Whereas in social science, there's almost no agreement about anything at all. And and what is more, the different disciplines look at human beings and look at society in completely different ways or the mainstream of those. So I'm interested whether you agree with this, that part of the problem for social science in being able to be imaginative is that it doesn't really have the foundation of commonly accepted beliefs, really. 
I don't think I really agree with that. I don't think that is what's inhibiting social sciences from doing their work on your hospital system of 2040 or 2060 or 2080. I would argue that in the natural sciences, in universities, there are very strong encouragements for looking ahead and designing possible options, new treatments, new ways of using genomes, new algorithms. You're encouraged to do that by research councils, by your university, by venture capital and investors. There's almost an assumption that the best brains should be thinking quite radically about options some way out, most of which may be a bit crazy, most of which won't work, but a small number of which will be absolutely transformative for our society. In the social sciences, almost the opposite is the case. There's a very strong and in some ways, you know, well-intentioned focus on analysis of the present and the past using data, using evidence, which by definition has to be of the past, rather than inventing the future. And many younger social scientists now say it's it's pretty career-threatening to really work on speculative things a generation out. You won't be rewarded in terms of the peer-reviewed journals you publish in. You'll find it hard to raise money for this sort of work. And yet I think that kind of work can be done seriously, rigorously, with the best available knowledge. It doesn't have to rest on a complete consensus about how you know, human nature works or you know what makes societies tick. That's not the barrier. The barriers, the incentives within the system have essentially squeezed imagination right out to the margins. And I do partly blame the leaders of of the system for allowing that to happen because universities are where we have so much brain power. And if that brain power, the people with really deep knowledge of things like health services or economies or crime and punishment, they're not working on this stuff then it means almost our society is much more likely to be sort of stumbling its way into the future rather than having, say, plausible, desirable roadmaps of what the options could be. Yeah, I'm just going to hold on to my disagreement with you there, Jeff, because I think I'm going to say that if you're a sociologist and you are encouraged to believe that society can only be understood through the prism of who's oppressing who, or if you're a mainstream economist who thinks that the very idea of the future is problematic because, in a sense, it implies planning and that actually we should just allow markets to do what markets do. I do think these are inhibitors, actually, of imagination. But let's pass over that point. So in terms of the kind of who done it, who stole our social imagination, who do you see as being the main culprits? Well, if I could just pursue what you just said and agree with you a little bit on that, I think you have highlighted some of the intellectual barriers So, as you say, economics, which is one of our dominant um, disciplines, has literally no way of thinking about what an economic system could look like after capitalism. It's almost ruled out as a question. It has any number of ideas of how, as you say, there can be tweaks and adjustments within an existing market system. But it's definitely career-threatening to try and do serious design on a radically different kind of system. And many of the people in sociology, cultural theory, other fields, in a sense, gravitated to a comfortable space of critique and commentary rather than thinking through different options. And I point out in in the book, one of the places this became glaringly obvious was the Internet. One of the dominant facts of the last 20 or 30 years, which we are on at this very moment, the result of huge investment, public and commercial, in the technologies and how to do click-through advertising and all sorts of stuff. 
and some critique which saw it as a monstrous new form of predatory capitalism, but remarkably little serious work on how this whole technology system could be turned in different directions, for example, to support better human mutual support or to support the health service or to reconfigure democracy. And it was only very late after, probably after President Trump was elected, that serious attention turned to misinformation, corrosion of democracy, what it was doing to childhood. And I think that is a failure of the academy. The book is mainly, Jeff, around this kind of question of of the decline of social imagination and what it is that could foster it. But you do, at certain points in the book, particular chapters, suggest some of the kinds of big ideas which would stimulate that kind of thinking or which might comprise these kind of imaginaries as you describe them. Just just share with us two or three of those kind of big shape-shifting ideas that you think we ought to, that would be useful for us to think more about. Well, the book has a lot of quite almost micro-methods which you could use to rethink anything from a, you know, the library service to public parks to a GP surgery to the United Nations. And I do encourage use of these essentially creativity methods for expanding our sense of the possible. And then these can be used to flesh out some of these, what I call more sort of generative ideas, which really help you rethink how the world works. And There are many of them, of course, in the ecological field. The circular economy has been around as an idea for 30, 40 years. It's still not fully embedded. Obviously, a world without meat and uh, transforming its relationship to food, that's literally a very fertile route to go down. I'm very interested at the moment in, in a sense, the much more serious attention to mental health as on an almost equal footing with physical health. And imagining what that would mean for a city, for a health service, or for your street, if we really took mental well-being, anxiety, and depression as seriously as traditionally the NHS has taken you know, the threat of heart attacks or cancers or infectious diseases. And that's the sort of question which I think is useful and then can feed in, hopefully, to you know, political programs, to what's done by a mayor or a newly elected party to transform its society. And perhaps the most important of all of these is what happens to our democracy. We are at the moment all over the world seeing a steady corrosion of belief that democracy is the best way to run a society, it appears to be declining generation by generation. And there are some fairly obvious reasons for that in the deficiencies of how our traditional models of parties and parliaments and four or five yearly elections work. So let's reimagine democracy. Let's think about what can be learned from the thousands of experiments around the world that you're very familiar with, which are reimagining decision-making in neighborhoods or you know, how, a, how a whole society thinks 20, 30 years ahead, how to resolve moral dilemmas like gay marriage or how to think about the options for climate change. And through that kind of imaginative process, hopefully we provide some energy for our democratic system to reform itself. And at the moment, one of my concerns is the people at the heart of our democracy don't really even realize there's a problem because they are the beneficiaries of that now slowly decaying system themselves. They don't even realize just how badly we need to reimagine it. There's a fascinating 
section in the book, Jeff, when you, you kind of talk about the structure of thought almost, the way in which we put ideas together. And you have a kind of fourfold way of doing this. So I often talk about this not so much in the context of imagination, but I talk about the missing middle. So a typical political speech, if you think of it as a kind of pyramid, it has at the top a set of values which tend to be unarguable in favor of, of happiness and, and fairness and justice and blah, 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 blah. And then at the bottom, there's a set of very specific interventions. And so a typical political speech has got all this highfalutin rhetoric and then some kind of nerdly announcements of £20 million for this or a commission to explore that. And what's nearly always missing is the middle in terms of the theory of change. What is it that we think connects the values that we're trying to pursue to the individual practices that we might put in, in motion? Now, there is a part of your book where you, you as I say, you use a kind of use kind of four steps to think about this. So tell us about that. I found it intriguing. So what I was trying to explore is the difference between what I call thin imagination and a sort of thick imagination. And the argument is that ideas only really transform the world if they become thick. I give a few examples. One is the ideas of cooperation, which Robert Owen came up with almost exactly 200 years ago. And that started as a very sort of simple idea. It would be good for people to cooperate together. He then turned that into a series of what I call sort of generative ideas. So it, one is actually cooperation could be a way for running factories or running an economy. He also had ideas about cooperation in the family, which actually didn't work so well, and the creation of communes, but they were at least generative ideas. Then you get their application to particular domains, as I say, like a religion. He tried to invent a new religion as well as a new economy. And then there's a whole series of practical experiments and so on, which, if they're successful, over time feed back and thicken that whole imaginary with examples and references and new concepts. The circular economy is another example of that, which has moved from a very, again, simple idea, an economy, you know, which reuses its, all of its waste. Then that turns into a series of generative ideas about how you have regulations or taxes and so on. And then those are applied to glass or plastics or clothing or old computers. And then hopefully there's a lot of practice which builds up the skills and competence to do it well. And I think this becomes useful because you can see some quite surprising imaginaries which are missing crucial bits. And one which is one I've always been interested in is Buddhism, which has you know some glorious ideas of imagination, but has surprisingly lacked their articulation into how you might run a health service, perhaps, or a company, or a democracy. And that's made Buddhism in some ways much less influential than it might have been. Or the ideas of feminism have a long, long history with feminist utopias going back 600 years. But it was it took a lot of time for that imagination to thicken out into also encompassing you know, new laws, new ways of doing equality in the workplace or in terms of recruitment or taking family and childcare seriously. And then all the way through to the new ways of thinking about masculinity or microaggressions and so on. And that's a thickening of imagination, which takes a lot of time. But it's only when you've done that thickening, where the practice is feeding back into the theory, that you really change the world. 
I want to move in the end of our conversation, Jeff, to, to issues around time. So one point that you make that I think I've heard you make before, which is your experience of government was that there was a tendency to do things that needed to be done fast too slowly and things that needed to be done slowly too fast or to try to do them too fast. And and actually, in my experience, one of the reasons we need to use our imagination is to develop what another friend of ours, David Albury, uh, I first heard use this phrase, split screen thinking. And the point there is often in the face of you know huge challenges, let's think about the health service again, it can feel like there's no time to think about the medium term, the long term, no time to think about what our aspirations might be because we've simply got to face the problems we have. Now, I was talking just yesterday to someone very senior in NHS England about the winter crisis. And they were saying, look, we're already kind of moving into a kind of sense of real urgency about the imminent, about winter crisis, which is inevitable. But yet there is a choice when we face these short-term challenges, which is how do we undertake them? And the point about this notion of split-screen thinking is it's only if you have some idea of where it is you might want to end up that you can then ask yourself, how can we address this short-term challenge in a way that doesn't undercut the future, but in some way, even if it's in some small way, contributes to that future? So it, it can help us overcome this dichotomy between the short-term and the long-term. I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think that's going to become... You know, perhaps particularly important in the next two or three years. I mean, I sense, and I think many people sense, we've got an accumulation of crises hitting us. We haven't really recovered from the financial crash of 2007-8. We've had the climate crisis intensifying in many parts of the world. We've had the COVID crisis. We've had Ukraine, energy prices, food, possibly new refugee crises next year, and a, and a long-standing political crisis alongside it. Now, in some ways, that may squeeze out the time and energy to think about the long term at all, to feel optimistic about any other options. But actually, history tells us sometimes those moments of crisis create the demand for ideas which otherwise seem much too radical to be realistic. And I think it's really incumbent on anyone, whether you're in a leadership position or lower down a hierarchy, to not only attend to the present, but also to make sure you have, as it were, in your back pocket, the options ready for that moment when new things become possible and when you can align what's needed in the present with the long term. And an example uh, when I give is the United Nations. Ten years before the UN was created, in the late 30s, it seemed completely absurd, utopian, to be doing any thinking about you know, recreating a global body committed to human rights and peace. Absolutely mad. But luckily, people did do a lot of that work, just as in the 30s, lots of people did the design work on a future welfare state or, or health service, so that when, after 45, conditions changed, there were the ideas ready to be implemented. And I think that's part of really the duty of thinkers, people who want to contribute to making the world better, that you ensure the options are there. You'll never really know when the time is ripe. You can't predict you know, when the moment will come for your ideas, but probably in periods of intensifying crises of the kind I suspect we're moving into now, there will at some points be more, more demand for ideas, which perhaps even two, five years ago looked completely unrealistic. Yeah, and actually the person you, you quote making that point is Milton Friedman. And, and I think that 
you know, much as it might pain progressives, it is actually the new right that one should explore in terms of this lesson, because the new right gathered together around the kind of ideas of Hayek and organized themselves at a time when nobody was really interested in those kinds of ideas at the time of kind of butzkalism when, when conservatives were really adapting to a social democratic mindset. And then when the 70s came along, when things started to fall apart, there they were with a set of ideas ready to be mobilized. So I think that that is the most vivid example of what you describe. Now, you wouldn't expect me, Jeff, to let you leave, and I'm going to ask about politics in a second, without talking about my favorite subject, cultural theory, not cultural theory broadly defined, but the narrower version of Mary Douglas and her followers. And the reason I say this is because I once thought to myself that if you think of the categories that are used in that theory, the notion that, as it were, there are kind of three fundamental ways of thinking about change in the world, the kind of hierarchical, the solidaristic, and the individualistic, that actually each of those is attached to a way of thinking about time, that the hierarchical view tends to be more future-oriented, the solidaristic view tends to be more past-oriented, and the individualistic view tends to be more present-oriented. Now, the reason I say that is because your book, although it talks about imagination, is not a book that suggests that there is nothing to be learned from the past, nor, as we've just been discussing, is it one that says we shouldn't attend to where we are now. I think one of the themes of your book is the need for eclectic, diverse thinking, and that actually, if one was imagining the future, having people who are really interested in the future could actually be assisted by people who also think deeply about the past and what would want to retain from the past, as well as those people who've got a very strong account of exactly where we are now, what needs to happen next. Yeah, and obviously we have to learn from history about the rhythms of change and good readings of history make us realise, going back to the previous conversation, how fast things can move and how what appears utterly immutable and fixed can can decay very quickly. The famous quote, which isn't actually from Lenin, that there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. But I think it's crucial that anyone who is trying to imagine something for the future can relate that to the present and the past and ideally dress it up, tell a story, which may be about recovering something lost from the past. As you say, the, the right is very good at doing that. Make America great again, you know, taking back control. These are stories of return to put right something that's lost. But often the progressives have done the same. There's a great you know, British tradition of you know, going back to the Norman yoke and this idea that before the Normans arrived, we had a sort of true community democracy and equality which had been taken away. So I think that the narratives around imagination, I have a whole section of the book, looking at these different sort of storylines, I think the most powerful ones do have that sense of an arc, as it were, which links us to often the quite distant past, the action in the present, and how that then hopefully contributes to a better future. And even something very technocratic can be put in those terms. So one of the examples Milton Friedman would probably hate, but which absolutely uh, exemplifies his point is a global minimum corporation tax, which is being implemented at the moment, a 15% corporation tax. Five years ago, that looked completely impossible. Inconceivable, the world would agree that. I think in five years' time, there'll be quite a few more like that because governments will be so desperate for money and inequality is so stark. 
But a tax like that can be presented as a return to a previous era of fairness. And Joe Biden does this in the US. He reminds people, you know, in a way of the time in the 40s and 50s when there was a very different way of handling corporate tax and the businesses and the rich played their part in their society rather than presenting it as something entirely novel on a clean sheet of paper. And it's worth saying in passing, because one of the things that you say in the book was actually two points. One is the important role institutions can play in fostering imagination, but also the importance of those people who may not be the ones who have the imagination, but then do the work of thinking about how that can happen. And I, I just think of the role that OECD played precisely in that shift, in the in the hard work they spent over many, many years when that idea was not fashionable, doing the background work necessary to ensure that when it did become fashionable, there was a model that could be used. Now, Jeff, you're progressive. You've been involved in politics. So you've had the Keir Starmer conversation. And I'm just interested, given <laughs> this book, what your take is on it. So I will defend Labour's leader on the basis that, you know, it's hard to have big policy ideas in opposition. If they're rubbish, they get hung around your neck. If they're good, they get stolen by the government. That things change very quickly. That anyway, people really aren't really all that interested in policy. They're more interested in narrative. And anyway, he's got no idea who he will be facing in the next election. So you can lay out Labour's stall to beat Boris Johnson and end up fighting Liz Truss. So I can make all these kind of explanations for the lack of this kind of imaginative core to Labour's project at the moment. But in the end, I guess, in the end, I'm still a bit like everybody else, slightly disappointed that there doesn't feel to be more to be excited about. Do you think this is a problem with the Labour leadership that we've got? Or is it something deeper, which is in your book, which is in a way articulating imaginative accounts of the future is just so unfashionable that were he to do it, it would be political suicide. So I would hope that the leadership of the opposition could distinguish two very different things. So one is your programme, your manifesto. I think there are quite good reasons for not tying yourself to very specific policies, which might be torn to shreds by the media, might be out of date in two years' time when we've gone through maybe a severe recession, might not fit a transformed Conservative Party. But I think that is no excuse for not cultivating, as it were, a landscape of opportunities, not generating the options, the ideas, not being seen to be interested in exploring that. And the the resurgent centre-left parties of Scandinavia, I think, all do this pretty well. They're much more comfortable talking about what is a future welfare state, maybe future rights, a zero-carbon economy. In Germany, you know, Olaf Scholz is sometimes presented as a slightly dull guy, and, and he is, but actually the Greens and the SPD have around them, you know, quite a lively debate about uh, options and imagination. And if you look at all the transformative governments of British history in the last 100 years, pretty much, they all came to power, in part helped by a, a tide, a sea of new thinking and new ideas, not always for the better. But that certainly was true in not just in 1945 and 79 and 97. It was also in some ways true for David Cameron, when he came into power. And if you don't have that energy, and that source of ideas, which are options for you, you don't have to commit to them, is much less likely you in government will make the weather, is <laughs> much less likely you will actually leave a lasting uh, imprint on your society. 
And I think that's as true, not just at a national level, but as at a city level too. You need mayors who can at least give a sense to their electors. They have some ideas about 20, 40, 60 years' time, but they are just technocratic managers or they're so terrified of you know, being beaten up by the Daily Mail. We sense that fear, I think, as the public, and we have less confidence in them as a result of sensing their lack of confidence in themselves. Which reminds me of one of the lessons I've learned from you, Jeff, talking about the future which is that a really powerful way to talk about the future is not simply to describe a possible future, which can often feel slightly unmoored to reality, but to do what I've heard you do very often, which is, as it were, rather than describing a mythical plant that doesn't yet exist, what you do is you point to a a, a field and say, look, see those plants, these ones, these are the ones that are going to grow, and these are the ones that will be part of the future. And I think that's the way that you deal with this problem about the future feeling slightly slightly intangible is to identify, you know, that terrible cliche, the future is out there, but it's unevenly distributed, but to identify that there are there are examples, there are fragments of what that future might be. Jeff, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you for joining with us. Thank you. In his book, Another World is Possible, Jeff describes various habits and resources that might help our imagination. So here's a question. What would you turn to if you felt the need to spark your imagination? Maybe make something out of Lego. Ring up someone you haven't spoken to for several years. Try to devise a new recipe. Pick up a book of poetry. Because of this podcast, I read Jeff's book in the wrong way. All of it at speed But now it's going onto my shelves so that every time I catch myself being fatalistic or conventional, I can give myself a bit of an intellectual jolt. I strongly encourage you to do the same. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.